So I don't know if uh, your super Sunday is kind of like mine, uh, but like there's nothing that reminds me of um, too high of expectations for life than Super Bowl Sunday because we have rearranged our life, we rearranged our afternoon um, around a game that is likely not going to live up to the hype, right? We all know that, and like, but we've taken two weeks off and so everybody's gonna spend like millions of dollars to get people to look at some creative 30 seconds so that we might buy their product and they put all their eggs into the basket of the Super Bowl when they might introduce us to their seltzer water or whatever it may be. Um, and, and it's this opportunity for us to remind ourselves that expectations don't always live up, uh, our expectations don't always live up to reality or re rather reality doesn't always live up to expectations. Um, I say that because it's a little bit like technology. Um, like there's nothing that I've bought throughout my life that consistently lets me down more than technology. It's shiny, it's new, it's gonna make my life easier. And within 30 minutes, my life is the same. I'm out a grand and my fingerprints are all over the shiny thing. Or my kid's fingerprints or it gets left in the rain. Not that my kids would ever do that. Maybe they have. But it's this reminder that man, our expectations can many times rob us of the joy of what is. And I tell you all that because I've wondered how you're doing as we've journeyed through Galatians. To me, as I reflected this week, these last couple of weeks on really what Galatians, big picture stuff on Galatians, really it's been about shattering your expectations. What is Christian community? How can a Christian leader speak that way? Um, and yet there is this invitation to what is better than we expected. And so my invitation for us is to continue to believe that what God has ordained, it is truly better than what we have expected. Paul, who is writing in Galatians, has rebuked his false teachers and in fact have cast them into hell, right? He's not afraid to go, oh, they deserve the deepest darkness, darkness that there ever could be in Galatians 1. He simultaneously then publicly calls out Peter, who is a pillar of the faith in chapter 2. He calls them idiots in chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, the, the, the word there is like literally you're being idiots. How can he do that? This is shattering my expectations of an apostle, isn't it? It's a, it certainly is shattering my expectations. And at the same time, he's calling us to be loving and gentle and patient with one another. How do these things, these things go together? He's encouraging us, again, to live out of our identity, not as slaves, but as sons and daughters. What is God doing? I truly believe that he is breaking down our dreams of what the church should be in our minds so that he can give birth in our hearts to what he wants. Let me say that again. He is breaking down the dreams that we have for Christian communities so that he can give birth in our hearts to what he wants for us. We struggle with this. We've always struggled with this. Throughout all of time, there was um, a, a scholar uh, who, and a theologian of last century who actually died in World War II. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called Life Together. If you've not read that book, it's gotta go to the top of your list in 2020. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about our expectations, about our dreaming about Christian community. It's a fascinating uh, ver uh, quote. It says, God hates visionary dreaming. Okay, right there, you've already put us back on our heels, Dietrich. 
God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man or woman who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God. Demands that it be realized by others and demands that it be realized by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren, and he acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort of failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. And so he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, and then an accuser of God, and finally, the despairing accuser of himself. Paul is this forerunner to Diedrich Bonhoeffer many, many years before, right? He's an apostle. He is one that is chosen to write down the scriptures for us. But I think it's reworded some centuries later by our friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer to, to give warning to us on what we expect community to truly be, what we expect Christian leaders to truly be. There's this warning for us, and yet there's this invitation to something better than what we dream about, something better than what we expect for us to be for each other. And as I've been reflecting, that's really where I wanna go today is that, man, God has something, he has ordained something better than we expected. And so why can I say so clearly that God's um, ordination of community is better? Because it's what he ordained, it's what he planned, not what I planned. It's what he wants, not necessarily what I want. And isn't this what Paul is contending for in the book of Galatians? For his hearers to cling to Christ, not so that they can be comfortable, but because in community, to make their community and their community's goal, their highest goal, formation into Christ. Isn't that what Paul is contending for? That our highest goal would be formation into the character of Christ. That means we must let go of our expectations and our dreams of what this may become and cling on to Christ as he is calling us forward into formation. Something far greater than comfort. So how can we experience what God expects, not just what we expect? And I think there is... Um, there's some, some instructions in this if we'll look beyond just uh, the, the surface here. The first thing I think that we need to be called into is, is, is this circle of brethren that Dietrich Bonhoeffer refers to. I'm going to refer to it as this soul circle. This circle of friends or circle of people, of two to four people, that you're going to allow to speak into your soul. Will we guard that the way that Paul is calling us to guard it, or will we just let anybody and everybody speak into our souls? I mean, our friend list on Facebook has access to our soul on, on some levels, and we don't have a 1,000 friends. We don't have 500 friends. We might have a few that are willing to journey through with us through this life. And again, that's the first expectation that's being shattered here. You would expect me to think, well, everybody's welcome. Everybody can play this game, but that's not the way Jesus lived. In fact, the way that he lived is he, had, he, he treated the masses way differently than his disciples, and then he treated his, some of his disciples way differently than others, right? On the Mount of Transfiguration in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was three guys that he invited in. It was, uh, who, what were their names? I don't even remember. It's on my piece of paper. It was James, uh, John, and Peter, right? These are the guys that were invited into the inner circle to see things that Judas didn't see. 
to see things that Thaddeus and Thomas weren't allowed to see because he was building something in there. He was letting them into, quote unquote, his soul to reveal something new to them. There's a difference in how we should relate to a few rather than the masses. I'm not talking about not loving your, 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 your neighbors. I'm not talking about befriending non-believers. We love them, but we don't expect them to do the same things that we have in those in our quote-unquote soul circle, our circle of brethren. These few people that have access to our souls, the teachers, the mentors, the friends, the family, who, who listen to our deepest doubts and encourage us into the deepest waters and invite us to wonder at God's wisdom and his goodness, all the while helping to ensure that our soul is pointing to true north. True north of Jesus and the way that he lived. His instruction. That's what we heard from our kids. Like, and, not just baptize them, and teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. That's different than what we may form in our own minds of what community is about. So we have to figure out who, who this is, right? It's trickier than we want, but it is our reality. For the Galatians, it was tricky for them. If we read verses 7 through 10, what we'll find is this, this great reminder. That this is tricky for the Galatians. They had a clear affinity for this circumcision group. And if you're new to the Grove, this is your first time. This is the, the overarching theme of Galatians. That, that Paul had planted these churches in this uh, modern day Turkey. And as he's writing some mere months later, he's writing back to them because he's heard reports that they are deserting the God of the gospel. The God of free grace. And in so doing, they are submitting themselves to a thing called circumcision. And for them, it was actual circumcision and food laws and a couple of other things. And so this circumcision group, these false teachers were coming in and saying, hey, Paul's a good guy. He didn't want to disappoint you. He actually didn't want to, he was a little bit afraid of you, as a matter of fact. So afraid that he didn't give you the full instruction that if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to become fully like Jesus and after all, Jesus was a Jew, and Jewish people, Jewish men get circumcised. So, you're up, guys. And that was the kind of basic message that Paul's now writing back into. For us, it may seem like a small thing to them and to Paul. It was an abandonment of the gospel. It's a huge, huge deal. For the Galatians, they had an affinity for this circumcision group. And some of the reason is because this, this group of Judaizers, circumcision group, this group, man, they, they were really good at one of the best tricks in the book for manipulation. And you know what that trick is? It's flattery. It's, oh, like he says it in, in Galatians 4.17, um, they make much of you. They flatter you. They, they build you up into something that probably you're not. And Paul is saying to us and to them, and be careful of those that are only there to make flattery of your life. And instead, the Galatians were sucked into this shallow pool of flattery and their souls were in danger. So much so that Paul's words serve as a warning to them and to us about this small group of people that we speak, let speak into our souls. The consequences for the Galatians are in chapter five, we're in seven through 10. Let me read it. Verse seven. Look at, these, look at the, the, the consequences of letting the wrong people into your soul circle to kind of tell you what the gospel is when they have bad motives in mind. They're only there to flatter you and to make much of you, to win, them, win you over to themselves. He says this in verse seven. You were running well. When I left here, you were running well. 
Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion that these guys are telling you about, it is not from God. What a bold statement. This isn't the way that God has called you. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of this is going to change the whole DNA of the lump of dough. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. We, it, it brings us back to verse or chapter 1 where he says, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven. If he preaches a different gospel, let him be cursed to hell. I don't care who it is. They will receive judge, uh, just judgment from God because they're leading you astray. This, this seems to me to kind of fly in the face of what we expect Christian community to be. Of what we expect Christian leaders to do and how we ask them uh, to lead. But he goes in, right, and he says, hey, who cut you off in the marathon that you were in, in the race that you were running? Who got in on you? They didn't use their blinker. They just got right in front of you. Who was that? I want to know who it was, Paul's saying. They deserve to be judged because the, the life of a Christian inside of Christian community is a marathon, not a sprint. And in an Instagram world, that's a little bit troubling for us. We expect all of community to be somehow working its way towards this moment that deserves to be on social media. That would be fun, and that would be like, ooh, this might go viral one day, that somehow that we've put our lives around, y'all are looking at me like this is not true, but it is true. We have based our lives around the image that we project socially instead of intimately and in community. But our life is not meant for that, right? Our life is meant for much, much more. And instead, a Christian community is far better than we expect for something like a social moment. Instead, it is, as Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction. So I've never run a marathon. I know that will come as a shock to many of you, but I've never run a marathon. Um, don't know, easy, killer. <laughs> Somebody thought that was a little too funny. Uh, we'll talk after this. Uh, so nonetheless, but I've never run a marathon, but I have watched them on TV. And what do you see on the sidelines, right? You don't see people on the sidelines going to the runner. Man, you've done better than you've ever done before. You've put 20 miles in. Just give it up. You did a really good job. It looks like you're going to die. So just like the last six miles, just you're good. You don't see that. And if you do, that's not the thing that's publicized, right? Instead, what you see is a bunch of people about mile marker 15 to 20 kind of rooting on the people that are gonna die. Rooting on the people that are in more pain than they've ever experienced in their life. Their back is on fire. Their legs are on fire. Their lungs can't take on any more. Like they're just running and there's people on the sideline going, you got this. Come on, baby. Let's go. Why? Are they some sort of like sadistic crew on the side that just loves pain? No, they have a greater purpose in mind. And so they're encouraging those that are in pain. They're encouraging those that want to give up to continue going towards the goal. That is the Christian community. I need to go run a 5K. So that I can be encouraged along with all of you. Man, what is this Christian life about? See, the thing is that when God used these, uses these uh, metaphors like a race, if we're not somehow putting ourselves inside of those metaphors, we're going to miss out what God is trying to communicate to us. 
There is a race that we are all running, and it's not just to get old and die. It is to be formed into the person and into the character of Christ. And how will we do that? Alone or in community with our brother Paul and our brothers and sisters here going, man, who cut in on you? What happened? You were, your race that you were running, it was so good. I was so proud of you for so long. What happened? See, these people on the side of a marathon race and hopefully in this room, we have a bigger picture in mind. So this question is, will we give in to someone's flattery to just give up, to take the easy exit out of the race of God's grace, or do we want someone who is going to cheer us on and point us towards the goal of Jesus himself? We would all say we want the person to point us to Jesus. But this is sneakier than we would imagine. Very sneaky. See, sometimes we settle for good moral advice, like good advice that people are caring for us instead of advice to continue to trust Jesus all the more. I'll give you an example that the Lord gave me this morning. Uh, was at my spot at Starbucks, and another pastor came in that I usually see on Sunday morning. I'm like, hey man, what's up? How you doing? Good to see you. He's like, hey, that person right there, barista, used to worship with us over at this other church. Oh, cool. That's great. Hanging out, all of a sudden we start talking. I start talking to this young lady. And I said, she goes, yeah, I haven't been to church in like four years. What's your reaction in that moment? Someone tells you I haven't been to church in four years. We can be guided by a, a world of comfort and go, oh, okay, well, I go just up the road. That's good. Or we can be guided by uh, some, some sort of formation in us. That's, there's a curiosity there, right? And so I asked her, well, why is that? Why haven't you been in four years? And all of a sudden, this story of pain, of disappointment, of loss, like a lot of loss, and confusion just pours out. And, and what I heard in that moment, that you're gonna have to kind of just come with me a little bit, what I heard in that moment was circumcision group versus this invitation. The circumcision group was her family. Well, my mom and my dad and my grandma and all these people always told me, I better get in church. This is what you need to believe. And they just kind of forced me to do church. And I was like, well, maybe that's not the answer. Maybe all your hope isn't in the church. What if God's allowed all this loss for you that you now say are, you're really angry at God about? What if he doesn't care about primarily whether or not you're in church? What if he's allowed all these things to invite you to trust something deeper about him? What if all that pain, all that sorrow, all that loss means that you couldn't see how good he was without all that? What if there's a deeper invitation for you to trust and follow him in spite of disappointment? See, if we're not careful, we can say things that are really good at the expense of inviting people to Jesus we invite people to church, which is good. Like, we want people in church because they'll hear the gospel. But we can't do that without also inviting them to Christ. Another example that has come up, like, recently is, like, this, this really good moral advice for someone who's been dealing with anxieties. Like, I got all these anxieties, like all these external stressors, all these different pressures. And so what is good advice? Well, maybe you should remove yourself from some of those external stressors. Some of those pressure points in your life, just like cut them out of your life and, and therefore you'll, you'll not have so much anxiety. 
that would probably work for a little while. But sooner or later, you're going to be stressed out and anxious again. If you don't see those stressors, those external stressors, as invitations for us to continue to trust Jesus for whatever it is that this is digging up in my life. This isn't the problem. The problem is me. The problem is inside my heart. And this is just the reminder that something's off. This isn't the problem. I'm the problem. And instead, it's again, this invitation into something deeper, a deeper and longer trust and obedience in Christ than what we had before. So we can get rid of all the external stressors in our life and it will matter not for our formation. It'll make us more comfortable, but it will not matter for our formation unto Christ. What kind of community, what kind of walk are we going to walk? See, I have a question, and it's really that. It's, will we give in to the flattering but flattening words of the circumcision group, of this, this really good, simple advice, or, or will we be set ablaze by the forming friendships that God has given us to speak into our soul, which call us to continue in the marathon which the Messiah has designed for our good and for his glory? For this reason, at the top, we must guard our soul circle, our circle of brethren. And secondly, the only thing that will allow us to live and love as God desires for us to do is for our desires uh, to, re- be made for- to be formed by Christ through his gospel. See, the gospel is worth all the pain. The God of the gospel is worth all the pain that we will struggle through. Paul has contended with the Galatians to not just give in to the gospel, this is from last week, to not give in to the gospel of Taco Bell. Do you remember this? Who went to Taco Bell last Sunday? I ain't raising my hand. Who went to Lupe? Nope, we're all going, we didn't either. Great sermon, Josue, we applied, at least not the easiest part. Right? There's Taco Bell and there's Lupe. That's the gospel. The gospel is, oh, it's cheap and it's easy, or it's Lupe, it's something you want to savor for the rest of your life. If you've never been to Lupe, God bless you. And in so doing, this is the invitation for us to give up the one and to enjoy the other. And in so doing, he has been, this, this guy Paul has been doubted and he's been saying, hey, Taco Bell is fine, but it's not going to satisfy you. Instead, this Lupe, this, this gospel of Lupe is inviting us into more and, and Paul has been doubted because there's a Taco Bell on every corner. If Lupe's that good, why isn't it on every corner? He has been doubted. His ministry, his integrity has been questioned. And he himself says, I have been persecuted. Let's read verse 11 as we continue on. He says, but if I, this guy, he needs to be judged, whoever they may be. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision. Apparently that was an accusation of him. He's like, oh yeah, Paul agrees with this. And Paul says, no, no, no. If I preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Why am I, why has my life become troublesome with the gospel of grace? If I preach circumcision, it wouldn't be so. He says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. With great courage, Paul stands alone and calls them to a radical trust in Jesus. And he is now saying, I cannot not offend you. With all of his words throughout the book of Galatians that have been offensive, he's basically saying, look, if I'm gonna be a minister of the gospel, there's no way for the message that I give you to not be offensive. And so we'll just maybe experience that a little bit, right? That this message of the cross is a scandal. It is offensive because it is a death blow to our pride. 
Now, the people that have come to just put to death our pride and the credit that we want are all gonna do this and go, "Mm mm-hmm, and yeah. And the people that still wanna cling to a little bit of credit are gonna be hurting. Because this is the truth, right? This is the scandal. This is the offense. Your best days cannot earn God's love. That's scandalous. That's so different than anything else on the planet that you mean to tell me that my good parts aren't redeemable? Mm Mm-mm. Your best days, your best works will not earn you acceptance by God. You can be the best person that you know, but you are not better than Jesus. And so the decision comes. Will I cling to my own righteousness with my own good works, with my own attendance, with my own, put it down, or will I put that in the dirt where Jesus went and be risen with him to live a new life of faith, of trust in his righteousness, in his goodness? See, that's what's at stake here for Paul. That's what's at stake here for the Galatians, and that's what's at stake here for us. To continue to trust in the Jesus who so satisfied God's requirements so perfectly that he was alone accepted by the Father. And when he rose from the dead, he proved that he had the power and the authority to bring bring people back from the dead. Our good deeds, our baptism that we did, our prayer that we prayed, our responding at a camp, our walking the aisle, our serving the widow and the poor and the orphan, none of that will bring us acceptance with Jesus. Instead, it is only Jesus. It is all of Jesus. And he requires and asks us to give all of our life in obedience to him. So this is seen throughout all of Galatians, right? And I'll just read like two or three verses that this is this scandalous offense that this, it's in here, but we may miss it. So chapter one, verse 11 and 12 say this, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It didn't originate with man. It didn't come, come out of man. And he goes on, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Go down to 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, that's the most scandalous thing that we've read today. That God would set you apart for his glory before you were born. And Ephesians 1 would say, before the foundation of the world. However many years back that goes for you, before that, personally, intimately, for you. That's scandalous. You know why? Because you had nothing to do with it. You weren't good enough one day. You weren't like, oh, well, you know, God saw my goodness and decided to, to, to bring me out of the lie, out of the death. No, no. Before the foundation of the world, he set me apart and he called me by his grace. It was then that he was saying, Stephen, that he was saying, Meredith and Eddie and Deborah, you come to me, you're mine. We get caught up in this, well, why didn't he call that person then? I don't know, why'd he call me? Why'd he call you? But by grace, because he's rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love. That's deeper, that's different, and it's scandalous if we want credit. 
It goes on in verse uh, nine of chapter four, right? This is scandalous, this is offensive, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, you didn't even come to know him, you are known by him, you are passive in this whole thing called salvation. There's nothing that we did. There's no prayer, there's no baptism, there's no coming down the aisle, there's no response at camp. No, none of that is what brought us into the kingdom. It was God and God alone. That's scandalous for those of us that still want credit, that still want to cling on to something that we did. But the only reason why we responded at camp or prayed a prayer or got baptized or for me, went down at breakaway. Like in 1999, the only reason why I went down and, and talked to Greg Mott in that moment was because God had wrecked me before I ever got up. He's the one that showed me who he was. He's the one that showed you who he was and revealed himself to you just like he did with Paul. See, that's scandalous and that's offensive if we don't understand that salvation is by grace and grace alone. Absolutely. So Paul turns the corner, right? And he says, man, like the gospel is at stake here. And because the gospel is at stake, he's gonna start saying something really crazy. And I've been warned by my better half who's not able to be here because she's taking care of my youngest not to say certain words. So I'm not gonna say those words. But I'm gonna read the scripture we just kind of blew past it earlier, didn't we? When Steve read it, it was like, I'm sorry, what? Say that again? Look what Paul says in verse 12. You know, all these guys, that like, they're, they're leading you astray, okay? They're taking the offense out of the cross. The offense of the cross is we're not good enough. We're not gonna be steady enough. We're not gonna be consistent enough to earn God's favor. Instead, we have a spiritual problem with no human solution. We need something and someone to come from heaven to rescue us, and that's exactly what Jesus did, and we can't get past that. See, that's offensive. And then he says this, I wish those who unsettle you, who, who, who cause you to think that you can do this on your own, with your own merit, with your own circumcision, with your own good works, I wish that that person and those people, that they would emasculate themselves. Not allowed to say the words that are in my mind. In a book on circumcision, Paul turns it in an ironic and sarcastic twist to say, they want you to be circumcised, I'd like for them to be castrated. Excuse me, Brother Paul? Why is this okay? Why are you allowed to say things like that, Brother Paul? You're an apostle. This is in the scriptures for all of eternity. And you just said that you would, you would like for them for the knife to slip, is what you basically said? Okay, well, that, that blows my mind a little bit about what this Christian community is about. What's that about? I mean, why, why would Paul go to that length? Well, the gospel, again, is at stake. And he says this, if you make this small inclusion, if you add anything to the Jesus's sacrifice, you're in danger. If you add this small inclusion, your whole perspective will change. And here's the danger, friends. And I'm relaying it to us week after week, it feels like in Galatians. I mean, do you really want to live to gain God's acceptance? That's the question before us. 
Do we really want to live to gain God's acceptance? Or will we live, Christian brothers and sisters, from the acceptance that God has already given us in Christ? One will lead to a frantic life, and one will lead to freedom. One will lead to failure, and the other will lead to unbelievable freedom. That's the call before us. Will we have peace or will we have pain? Will we have forgiveness or fear? See, when God says that I am pleased with you, that's the gift to be sons and daughters that he's already brought us into the family. We don't have to perform to stay there or to get there. See, that's why he goes to such lengths to say pretty crazy things here in the book of Galatians in ways that he doesn't say in other books. And so I just had to ask myself, is this okay for a Christian leader to talk like this? Is it okay to make this sort of remark? And I have to say yes, because it's in the Bible. But I will also say this, like, why is this okay? Here's my best shot. The Christian community needs Christian leaders to give them the true and full character of God. To only emphasize the love of God and never talk about the jealousy of God would be to sell everyone short. You might think to yourself, okay, I haven't heard that word before, jealous. Let's go back to this law that Paul is saying, hey, you don't have to fulfill this. In Deuteronomy 4, it says, take care lest you forget the covenant. Talking about God's people, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and, made a carved, and make a carved image. The form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Don't make for yourself another gospel. It's easier, you can see it, you've made it, you can take credit. You see, does it sound familiar? We can take credit for some things, we can, we can make things with our own hands. No, he says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. This continues on in the book of Hebrews. Right, where he's pulling all sorts of imagery from the Old Testament, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving passive reception of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See, if I build it, it's shaken. If he builds it, it's never shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, it's not just about the love of God. The love of God is best expressed sometimes through the holiness and justice of God, much like the cross. How is it that God loved us? By sending his son to die for us. How is his justice best expressed? By satisfying the wrath on our behalf. That's exactly what Jesus did. And so that's why this strong language is here because if you pick up this one what you think is a small thing, the great chasm remains between you and the Father. Finally, as we end today, Paul knows that God would not allow his people to simply fold evil into normal life and call it Christian. And that's exactly what's going on in the book of Galatians. Folding your own credit and calling it Christian. And that leads us to our final point, which is this. He talks about freedom. True freedom, Christian freedom, means that you are bound to another. Isn't that just fly in the face of what you expect freedom to be? 
True freedom means that we are bound to another. This is what Paul means when he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Let's read this last section and we'll be done. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite, if you devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He's basically saying, if you act like wild animals, wild animals you will become. But instead, we were called to freedom. There's this final warning in here for us today where it says, hey, don't let your freedom be used as an opportunity for the flesh. So if you're a Simpsons fan, this is like, the flesh is like Mr. Burns. Excellent. Right? He, he wants to use what God ordains for us, community or freedom or whatever it may be, and he wants to use it for his own will, says the sinful nature of the flesh. Excellent, I will now exploit this freedom for my own purposes. And so he whispers to us, do whatever you want. It's your body. Do whatever you want. It's your money. Do whatever you want. Commit whenever you want. Decommit whenever you want. You're free, you live in America, man. Just do whatever you want, feel whatever you want, think whatever you want with our words, with our money, with our bodies, with our time. Commit when we want, decommit when it's not convenient anymore. Love Jesus when it is convenient or cool. We can put it on Instagram. Forget about him when he's inconvenient, right? What's worse is that our flesh is using these words like freedom and love and he sneaks behind enemy territory and he finds the opportunity to exploit us. Biblical freedom is found when we are bound to another. That's the invitation that do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And he's saying this, Jesus calls us his bride. If you're a dude in the room, that's weird. We don't know how to relate with that. Just as much as the, the women in the room have a hard time relating with being sons of God, so do the men have a difficulty relating with the fact that Jesus calls us his bride and he is our husband, Okay? But the truth remains, he's called us and he says, man, I'm committed and covenanted to you and you're free. If you're married in the room, you get this. You get that your freedom, your freedom was found being bound to another. It wasn't being just totally free and going and doing whatever you want with whomever you want over the long haul. No, your freedom was bound with another and God calls us into that same relationship and said, this is the kind of love that sets you free. Not that you can go do whatever you want, but that you do whatever you want inside this covenant relationship. And so he says this, aim for this one thing in life, serve one another in love. Bind yourself to another by loving them. Show that you are unified with Christ by loving the way that he loved. And when we do that, in the midst of suffering and persecution and disappointment, God's kingdom will come to earth. One soul at a time, one community at a time, one person at a time, one encounter at Starbucks at a time. No matter where we are, we will love that way. Man, how will that shatter the world's expectation of us? Let's pray. We love you. We're grateful, Lord. We're really grateful that you gave us the opportunity to come together this morning in a free country, in a place where our necks are not on the line for being here together. We're not gonna walk out of this door and wonder 
if the government has assembled around us to take us out. That is, that is a lot, millions of people reality throughout the whole world. But it's not ours, and so we are really grateful. We're also grateful that in, yes, we could go and have beautiful brunch somewhere this morning, but we instead thought there was a better purpose for life than sugary goodness or salty goodness on a plate. But instead, we want to feast on the bread from heaven. So thank you for putting that in all of our hearts this morning. Thank you for reshaping our expectations on what Christian community could be, what Christian leadership should be, and inviting us into something better than what we expected. Would you help us respond this morning as our kids continue to finish up where they are? Would you help us respond during this song? And then afterwards, we'll go get our kids. But let us just be all here for the moment. Maybe we need to ask the Lord, what's going on? What have I clung to? What's my circumcision? What's the thing that I trust that I've made in my own image instead of the image of Christ? What have I expected or demanded of the Christian community that I've been in? Do I need to repent of that? Who have I let into this circle? Do I need to reshape that, Lord? Give us discernment. Give us wisdom by your spirit. Would you help us as we respond in Christ's name? Amen.